Hello, friends, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, the weekly podcast where we take a deep dive into the scripture text for this Sunday and give you the chance to learn God's story so that you can live, love, and lead a life following Jesus. I'm Pastor Melissa, and I am so glad to be with you on this Lenten journey, um, this year exploring deep into our scripture text each week as we look at what love on purpose looks like in Jesus' story. Now this week, we have a lot to cover. We are back in the Gospel of John, just one chapter later. Now between last week and this week's text, we find the familiar story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to see Jesus at night in the darkness, where, we ask, where he asks about being born, um, a Greek word that, that often gets translated again, but can mean above, a um, little bit of wordplay again there. And this week's text that we are going to, to wrestle with is, is actually part of Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Now, the lectionary text we're using brings us in halfway through. So we're actually going to back up a bit and be sure that we know what question Jesus is answering before we dive into this week's passage. Now, beginning at the beginning of chapter three, this is where we meet Nicodemus the Pharisee. So if you want to join in reading with me, we're going to start with uh, John chapter three, verse one. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it is not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? Is It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Now, like last week, we get some fun wordplay on that concept of being born anew as this text translates translates it, um, or the, the word also means from above. Yes, this is where we get that classic phrase of being a born again Christian. But we also get another familiar verse coming up in this specific passage for today, because Jesus' response to Nicodemus' question of how are these things possible is a theological treatise that conveys the core of the Johannine writer's theological purpose in writing this gospel. We know from the gospel's prologue that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, or as many of us love Eugene Peterson's translation of it, uh, moved into the neighborhood. But we're gonna back up again and look at the context of this whole gospel to even better understand the implications of Nicodemus' visit to Jesus and Jesus' response to him. So we said last week this gospel was composed much later than the synoptic gospels, later into the first century, most folks estimated around the year 90 CE. And by the time of this gospel's writing, the Sadducees, these were the Jewish leaders who oversaw the temple and its customs, who would have been understood, the understood authorities in the passage we looked at last week, they had already been taken out of power. 
the city of Jerusalem and the temple that was the center of their power, those were both destroyed in the year 70. So this gospel writer is telling this story 20 years after a lot has already happened and around 60 years after the events themselves had occurred. Sometimes it's helpful to put in perspective. Imagine that we are now in 2024 writing a history of the 1970s and 80s in a way that helps us process events that happened around the year 2000. <laughs> That's the kind of timeline this gospel is operating on. So the temple would have actually been the dominant religious power in the time of the events the gospel describes. But as the cash cow for the Sadducees there, um, it's now gone for the reader, but not yet in the story. <laughs> so for the reader's time, so get into that 90 year, the Pharisees are actually ascending into power. Pharisees are Jewish religious leaders whose power centers around interpretation of text. So they become the greatest antagonists to the early Jesus movement in the late first century. So making Nicodemus a Pharisee is intentional. There are also repeated references later in the gospel to being thrown out of the synagogue, which may reflect a policy from contemporary Pharisaic Judaism that barred Christian Jews from the synagogues. All that to say, when we see a Pharisee come to Jesus in this gospel, and this Pharisee says that they know Jesus is sent from God, they call him rabbi and ask for his help interpreting his teachings, there is a powerful statement being made. And the political implications of this religious leader then not understanding is a theme that speaks volumes to the gospel writer's agenda. Now, the other piece of historical perspective it's important for us to consider when reading really any biblical text, particularly gospels, but particularly passages in which political and majority religious leaders are criticized, is that the Christianity of this time looks culturally nothing like the Christianity of our modern American context. The Johannine Christian community, uh, those for whom this gospel would have been written, was a small minority movement. They had no power, no influence. They had no ability to marginalize anyone. They had no ability to ca cause harm via exclusion. Now for us, we are in a world where Christianity has been the dominant religion for centuries, including at times holding formal and informal political power, uh, whether supported by the state or not. Christianity in our modern context and for the last millennium has held the ability to marginalize. Since Constantine, we as Christians and as the church have had the power to marginalize, to exclude, and to do harm individually and collectively. So it's important that when we read Gospels, we consider the world of the readers specifically, which is not our world, personally or culturally. So that aside, when we come to our passage for today in which Jesus is responding to Nicodemus' question, which Nicodemus' question does seem to be an honest search for truth, a leader in the dominant religious system, which has been seeking to oppress Jesus' followers, is exploring the what-if of this minority religious Jesus message. What if this guy is the real deal is basically what Nicodemus is exploring. So that's what the rest of our passage is about. Jesus makes clear just how real of a deal he is. 
And he clarifies the message he brings about what a life of discipleship looks like. And in it, he clarifies what God's love looks like through him being given to the whole world. That's our theme for this week, that love gives. So here's where we come to our focus passage for today. We're in John chapter 3, and we're beginning in verse 14. This is part of the uh, response of Jesus to Nicodemus' question of how is this possible? How is it possible to be born again? How is it possible to be born anew from above? And that comes into play in his answer. So starting in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son in the world to, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. And this is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world and people loved darkness more than the light for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. We have essentially three sections to look at here. One where Jesus again predicts his death. One where we get that classic passage that we have heard or seen cited again and again, but that talks about the generosity of God and the salvation offered through Jesus. And a third where we address the idea of judgment and how choice plays into discipleship. So first, Jesus' response to Nicodemus tries to put things in a context Nick would understand. He connects his own forthcoming sacrifice to the Old Testament with which a Pharisee would have been intimately familiar. He cites a story from Numbers where God sent venomous snakes into the wilderness as a punishment to the Israelites for complaining. That's a whole other story, right? And when the people did eventually repent, God had Moses create a bronze snake, lift it high on a pole, and anyone who had been bitten by one of the venomous snakes was healed by looking at it. Now, the symbolism is lost on Nicodemus, the idea of, of being born from above, the lifted up piece, right? But as we, uh, we as the reader, we know what's coming. We, we recognize Jesus' blatant connection of his death on the cross to the raising of the snake, to the healing of the world, and of giving life through that sacrifice. There's a double meaning again here in that the word used for lifted up also means to be exalted. The irony of the humiliation on the cross as exaltation is intentional from our gospel writer. Now in this passage, the idea of eternal life is also a new one. This is, this is a new concept that wouldn't have been familiar to Nicodemus as Jewish theology doesn't have a defined concept of an afterlife. So we see Nicodemus kind of scratch his head. I mean, we don't actually see that in the story, but that's what I imagine kind of happening in, in, as he listens to Jesus, because Jesus is using this coded and metaphorical language. And that leads us to the elephant in this textual room, John 3.16. Now, very seldom does this verse get acknowledged as part of this discourse in response to Nicodemus. And very seldom does this verse even get read in context with its surrounding discourse at all. Which is why it's always surprising that this has become such a beloved verse. Because taken in context, it's actually a really challenging passage to wrestle with for us as 
as, as loving, affirming, inclusive Christians. Now, one commentary warns us very specifically against removing it from its context. It says, there is nothing in the Greek text that suggests that John 3.16 ought to be lifted out of its context and made into its own paragraph. As a rule, when a verse begins with for, as in for God so loved the world, it's a good indication that what precedes that verse is what gives, its, it, gives it meaning. To separate out verse 16 as a thing in itself is to suggest that the heart of Jesus' life and ministry is actually personal salvation to eternal life apart from the context suggested by what precedes it. To that end, actual living piety, one's given, uh, one is given life here and now on earth, is reduced to ensuring that one has attained personal salvation for life then and there. Now, while this passage does give us indication of information that tells us about a life of discipleship, the Gospel of John is seldom personal, and when it is personal, it always brings the focus on the personal within a greater realm of the cosmic. So this passage, because it begins with four, tells us that it's interpreting what Jesus had just said, which is the connection of his own death to the story from Numbers. Now, we also have another word here that often gets misinterpreted and is actually the key to our theme for this week of Lent, that love gives. It's the word so, in that first part of the phrase, for God so loved the world. Now, we often hear that as telling us the degree to which God loved the world. God loved the world so much. But the Greek actually takes a different angle. So here actually refers to the way in which God loved the world, the manner in which God's love was, was given to the world. It might be better translated for our interpretation that God loved the world by giving his only son. And there are other translations that actually get this more clear for us. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, for God loved the world in this way. The New English translation says, for this is the way God loved the world. The New Jerusalem Bible says, for this is how God loved the world. So you can find more uh, uh, faithful translations that help us in English better understand what the passage is actually saying. We see that God's love here is named in the giving of God's son in Jesus. Are you wondering, Nicodemus, how God is God offering God's love to the world? By giving me is what Jesus says. Not just sending me, we see sent in almost every other passage talking about God's gift of Jesus to the world. Not just sending me, but giving me. Lifting me up as the snake was lifted up in this way, from above. Love gives. And love gives not just to a select few, which is, is the world Nicodemus would have come from and, and the idea of the Jews being the chosen people. That's the original plan he would have been on. And, and this is telling him that this is expanding. God's plan may have started with the Jews, but it now includes everyone, which is a welcome development if you're not Jewish, which by the time John was written, um, applied to more and more adherence to the Christian way with each passing decade. Now, verse 16 is important. It actually links the two different parts of Jesus' discourse here. It's kind of a linchpin, but a linchpin connects something else, right? So we'll do well um, to not only take what came before, that story of the serpent uh, being lifted up, 
to what comes next. And what comes next is where we begin to see that cosmic vision that John has more clearly, because the promise of eternal life is a pretty big one. Now, we see here that John's eschatology, as we call it, their understanding of the rest of time and how things will eventually end, is one that we call a realized eschatology. It's one that that we um, embrace as Methodists as well. John here is proposing unlike what we read in the Synoptic Gospels, which, which put um, eternal life as, as a far farther off concept, John proposes that eternal life is here and now. Because while we get two verses that talk about eternal life, um, when we get into the final section addressing judgment, the context that John is naming are present realities, choices that we are making here and now, and the choice immediately results in the life that is being discussed here. One um, passage says, In the Johannine vision, God's gift of Jesus, which culminates in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, decisively alters the options available to the world. If one believes, one's present is altered by the gift of eternal life. And if one does not believe, one perishes. Now, eternal life for John is living life no longer defined by by flesh and blood or by the will of the flesh of human will, um, but by God. Eternal, that word is not about a duration. It's not about endless duration, but it's a way of describing life as lived in the unending presence of God. The new life given to believers shifts eschatological ideas to the present, that it begins now. Jesus is here and now, and we have the opportunity to make the decision to believe or not to believe, which has implications for our life itself. This isn't a threat of heaven or hell at death, but an opportunity to live a real heaven or hell each and every day. And that offer is given to everyone. Jesus is given to everyone, to the whole world. The idea of eternal and complete salvation is possible because God's gift of love is given to all with the invitation for all to respond. Now, this is where it gets into some murky territory. If we stop here at verse 16, this is where verse 17 through the end comes in because verse 17 makes it clear that God's gift is not a gift sent for judgment. John's gospel presents choice as a key concept for people, not determinism, not predestination. God gives an opportunity for life, not a condemnation to death. And John presents a lot of dualistic sounding options, showing the difference of life spent in the light versus the darkness, believing or non-believing. And judgment is ours to make for ourselves. It's about a personal choice of how we are going to live life here and now. Now, we don't hear any more about Nicodemus in this story. We do, uh, we, we, we hear from the beginning, chooses to come. This was a, a key, uh, key factor, is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in the darkness. It's not a coincidence in John's gospel. Now, we don't know how he responded in that moment, because we just move on to the next story after this. But John wants us to, to think, basically, he walked away still confused at the time. We do see him later in the gospel with a glimmer of possibility that he did, in fact, become a believer and begin to move into the light. 
But for us on our Lenten journey, how do we take all of this in? Because maybe you are walking away even more confused. We, we went through a lot of, of things that, that are implications of this particular story. Um, but the thing is, tying things up in a bow with a single verse becomes dangerous when we don't look at what all is around it. But here's what we see clearly. We see a clear declaration that God's love is sent through Jesus as a gift. Not a gift only to believers or those into the light or Jews or Romans or whoever. It's a gift for the whole world that continues to be given, regardless of responses, regardless of, of whether or not um, we uh, believe or respond or, or whether we are in the light or the darkness. This gift continues to be given, to be lifted up and exalted for us to gaze upon to find healing and to find salvation. God's gift. God gives life eternal. God's gift is not judgment. God's gift is healing and not condemnation. God's gift of love in Jesus shows us that God is going to continue to give with the hope that we will step into the light, letting go of all the judgments we've chosen for ourselves and find what eternal life that begins now looks like. 